640 Toronto presents Think Tank, the breaking stories you care about. Please tell me. Okay, I'll tell you. The backstories you don't know yet. That's my question. Facts and opinions that get you through your day. You never know what you're going to get. And now let's meet the guests. Okay, it's all that and much, much more. 7.36, some light rain in the city of Toronto right now. It's 13 degrees, the current temperature. Let's say good morning to Kareem Assad. We love our conversations with her. Thanks for uh, being on the uh, Extendo chat today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, popping in studio with us, and he's visited with us before, is strategist. I was going to say strategist. I'm going George W. Bush already, you two. This is a bad sign on a Friday. (laughs) Strategist and founding partner of Canaptis, Jamie uh, Ellerton. I could use you for some consulting work. Are you free at 9 o'clock from 9 to 10 this morning? I can, I need I guidance. can spare that hour for you, Greg. I need guidance and pronunciation uh, guidance, I think, a fair bit. Let's go here with um, with just how it's been with this week and, and news coverage. Kareem, I'll start with you. The Canadian government claims this is their latest claim uh, in the evening last night. Actually, Justin Trudeau was at George Brown College just beside us at Chorus Key, um, speaking to students and having a bit of a Q&A. The government is, quote, quote, working on the information to determine who fired a missile that crashed near a Gaza hospital Tuesday. The U.S. and U.K. have made their call. They say their intelligence tells them it was a Palestinian-based terrorist group in L.A. of Hamas. What's, what have we done here with politicians rushing, rushing to judgment? Melanie Jolie had a tweet about it being illegal. Um, are we moving too quick with some of this information? It's one thing if the three of us do it. Who are we? But I don't know if we want the foreign minister and the prime minister being the first people on the planet to assign blame on a complicated scenario like this. Well, I think the past couple of weeks have been rife with misinformation, almost information warfare at times from our politicians. And that's very disappointing to see because clearly that stokes negative sentiments and and creates confusion in the populace. Now, with respect to the hospital scenario, uh, the mud, the the waters have been very muddied, um, and and I think that there are major discrepancies in what the Israeli defense forces are putting out and portraying as a narrative. And you know, I given that you're saying it can you, can you give me a great example of that that you spotted i've spotted some too but i want to know what yours would be so so al jazeera actually has an excellent second by second play of the footage that uh, idf is relying on to say that these were errant missiles um and debunking essentially that narrative um and if we just take it out of this example for a moment and set aside the fact that the World Health Organization condemned the call to evacuate 22 hospitals. So we know that hospitals were at least potential targets here, just based on the IDF's own statements. We know that uh, there were key officials who made statements on Twitter yeah. and later deleted those, walked those back when public opinion made it clear that there were negative feelings about this hospital being bombed. You know, if we, if we take all of that aside and we think about just another scenario entirely, and the death of uh, the journalist, Shireen Abu Akhleh, where the IDF story changed dramatically from she was shot by Palestinians to maybe it was us by accident to yes, that, that, we right. did it. 
Yeah, um, and that was a few years ago. Is that 2017, 18? But it, but I'm just clarifying for our audience. That's a that's a half decade ago, I think. But it's true. Much much more recently than that, I think. It 21. Was 2021, 2022. Okay. I don't recall the exact year. Okay. Uh, but but the, the point I'm making here is that the uh, Israeli government doesn't have a great track record, mm. um, and that's in part because of its policy of Hezbra, which is a, a, a tactic designed to shape narrative, and it's considered part of their strategy. Yeah. So when assessing claims, we have to keep that in mind, and, and I agree with what you said at the outset, that our government officials need to be particularly careful about uh, seeds that are planted and repeating, you know, uh, claims that are inflammatory. I, I worry that it's well said, and Jamie, I worry that that you know, I roll my eyes, I roll my eyes at the Melanie Jolie tweet, but I also roll my eyes when I see the Conservative Party of Canada trying to score points and put the heat back on the government in the House of Commons and say, "Well, the U.S. and U.K. thinks this. What say you?" Like I know. I know what they're trying to do, and I get the strategy of it. You would get it too, but I'm like, is this moving the dialogue any further ahead? Is this is this the civil discourse? Are we looking forward or are we looking backward here? Yeah, obviously you're seeing things coming fast and 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 in a fury. I think the actual mistake it was the prime minister commenting on this so soon. Like, I actually find it entirely plausible that Canadian tele intelligence is waiting for the cable from London and Washington and have to translate it into French before it gets sent up to the PCO National Security Advisor before the Prime Minister's brief. Like, I actually believe that Canada doesn't yet officially know and that the system's churning along. Yeah. Uh, I think the real mistake was that he went out on this so early uh, and absolutely everything the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister, even generic backbench MP is going to say right now is going to be put under a spotlight and a microscope in a way that most of their comments aren't. Uh, Politicians can often kind of get away with flippantly making a comment on something while it's hot and evolving a position and like flushing that out over Mm. time. But when we're talking about war in the Middle East, Israel's response to Hamas's terrorist attack uh, and the emotions and the vitriol and the global politics and the local politics that all get wrapped up in it, politicians need to, I think, take a, 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 an extra minute, an extra half day to be damn sure what they're saying as opposed to causing the controversy you've seen this week. And Karima, we talked before about Canada and India too. Like that just, that, that just dangles out there still, doesn't it, with the accusation, valid or not, from the prime minister about a state-sponsored assassination. And it just feels like the pause button's been pressed on that. And, and we don't have any more information as members of the public seven weeks later. Absolutely right. And, and that pattern is concerning um just given canada's reputation worldwide the fact that we have so many um members of different diaspora communities within our borders um it's it's incredibly important to be accurate and thoughtful in in messaging because it shapes public perception and and discourse in ways that can't be undone, even if a statement is retracted, even if something is walked back, you, you can't really put the toothpaste back into the tube. Let's get to uh, our second issue, and I want to start here with Jamie, but give you something from uh, Police Chief Myron Demke of the city of Toronto right now. He was commenting on an uptick in hate crimes. Yes, anti-Semitic hate crimes. Yes, uh, hate crimes of, that would be defined as Islamophobia as well. Here's the mayor, of, or here's the police chief of Toronto. We have been clear and we remain resolute. The Toronto Police Service will not tolerate acts of violence, intimidation, or hate toward anyone or any community. 
All right, Jamie, I often, look, I will be honest, I roll my eyes sometimes when I see the images from everything the last two weeks and I hear phrases like, words are violence. Violence is violence, but but words have meaning and they can be threatening and they matter. So we've seen a, a, a spark up, but even the raw number, I look at them for the year and it's less than one day. Maybe there's a lot of them that aren't filed, but I often find we don't double back and give, our, give ourselves enough credit to, to saying for a, as diverse a city as we are, Different perspectives, different ideologies, different religions. I actually think we don't give ourselves enough credit for bonding together as a community and point and, and agreeing on the stuff that's completely unacceptable. I think we agree on that far more than we disagree. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Greg. And I think often what you see with this is almost becomes like the atrocity Olympics where people try and show who's the most victimized. Uh, and this merely becomes an anecdotal point that people cite when trying to wage some kind of political debate in, in another reality. But I think what there, I do have no doubt believing that hate crime incidents are up right now. Uh, walk the streets of Toronto and just feel the palpable tension uh, yeah. that exists right now, and people don't feel safe, and there's good reason for that. You've seen for years now, you saw there's a trial underway right now for the fact that a family was mowed down by someone who was like straight-up anti-Muslim bigotry, mowed down a family in London, Ontario. Uh, synagogues more than probably any other religious institution constantly have to hire their own private security and take so many far more measures to keep their communities safe uh, because they're the vulnerable to constant threats and attacks in a way that no one else really is in this country. Um, and so I, when you hear these kinds of stats, I have no doubt that a lot of people don't report them. It's uh, not to trivialize it, but it's kind of like bike thefts. Like, okay, you go file a police report for your bike being stolen. You're part of a statistic. Do you actually believe they're going to do something about this unless it's truly a grave crime uh, and it escalates to something truly horrific as opposed to, say, a, a, a low-grade hate crime uh, where you're issuing right. a death threat with a, with, with a slur uh, and, it, and it, it, it stops at just the threat with the slur. Uh, do you really think yeah. the Toronto police are going to put the resources into investigate absolutely every single one of them? I, I, I would say the average person would say, no, it's not worth the bother. Karima, you've been at these rallies. You've seen the tension. You've heard some of the arguments and, and person with one flag arguing with person with another flag. There was a story in Pickering um, of a man walking up a driveway and ripping a Palestinian flag off a vehicle in a residential home. And he left behind a note, no less, with an offensive message. And and police are weighing whether or not that's a, a hate crime or not. They have to take that to the ministry of the attorney general. What are you seeing out there? I, I Again, the numbers don't they don't blow me away and stagger me to think, well, we're, we're just surrounded by hate right now. Yeah, I, I agree with that overall. Now, I will say that the temperature is heated and people mm -hmm. are feeling a very real sense of anxiety and helplessness as well as we are here watching through news or social media what's happening across the globe and being unable to really impact that. So I, I think that that creates a mindset where, you know, there's a predisposition perhaps um, to lashing out in ways that are um, inappropriate or targeting others. Uh, with respect to what I've actually seen at the ground, um, on the ground, at this point, I've attended four or five rallies um, across the GTHA. And uh, my observation has been that anyone who is coming with a message that even hints at violence um, is is really shut down by their cohort of, of protesters. Um, so there's been an, an internal policing of sorts um, to ensure consistent messaging, to ensure peaceful demonstration, um, to remove potential provocateurs or false flags or people who come with the intent of causing chaos 
um, to varying degrees of success. I think that's hard to do when you have large groups that are emotionally driven because of the realities of. of what yeah. Yeah. J- Jamie, I think we saw this so much after 9-11 where um, you-, you could say, listen, I don't want Afghanistan to be bombed into oblivion, but of course I don't support al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden. I think we did a disservice to the Muslim community by saying, oh, oh, okay, just just disavow al-Qaeda. And and I haven't heard you do it lately. Could you do it again for me? We do that sometimes. We we make that ask and say, and we do that within our own community. Like I look around and when, to be honest, when a white person does something terrible, nobody asks me and says, "You don't agree with that, right?" Because they assume I don't. It's probably not fair. It's a double standard. I would agree. There's definitely a double standard there. I think there's also just a lot of politics draped in all of this, specifically when it comes to the state of Israel, uh, how it was created, why it was created, and why it continues to endure. Uh, when you hear kind of a two cute by half. Israel held to one standard, a standard that no one else has held to. I think that's part of what fuels a lot of this comments. But sure. I think listening to Karma's uh, explanation there in terms yeah. of the rallies, like that to me sounds like smart activism and smart organization because people know one bad apple hogging the camera going viral will end up speaking for that entire protest. And so that kind of self-policing within the community uh, to have a clear message and to not have people hijack it is something that I think L- smart activists like, uh, should be mindful of. Sorry to cut you off. Karima, you had the video of uh, someone pulling up um, with a, with a, an Islamic State flag, did you not? And if I'm getting the flag wrong, I apologize. But, <laughs> but activists at a, at a rally or rally attendees, let me put it, went over to the car and said, no way, not here. Get out of here with that thing. Is that your video? I think it is. It is. Uh, it yeah. is. That one was a Taliban flag. There was also an ISIS flag that was asked to be removed as well. Um, these people didn't appear to have clear connections to others who were in attendance. And, you know, they, they were asked not to uh, to use um, the word there, hijack, hijack the event. Yeah. Uh, let's move to Sarah Jama. And you have uh, the legal training uh, and you know your stuff, Karima. So I'll ask you about this one. Controversy about Sarah Jama, NDP MPP. We just talked about it with Colin DeMello, who broke the news yesterday afternoon on our station that there's a cease and desist towards the premier of the province. He's got seven days to take down a media post and make an apology. I didn't again. I did not see this coming. I didn't see a lawsuit towards the premier of Ontario factoring in a week and a half ago. What do you think of these very recent events, Karima? Well, I think that Doug Ford's initial statement was quite outlandish and shocking and bore no real connection to what MPP Sarah Jama had made and had said in her statement. Um, So I'm not shocked, actually, at this turn of events. What's interesting is that uh, the NDP seems not to have known that it was coming. So, you know, there's as far as cohesion there, I, I can't speak to that. Um, I think there is a merit to the fact that uh, the, the, her statements were misrepresented in a way that is going to be harmful to her reputation. And so the premier should be looking at this very seriously. Jamie, you know your political strategy. I, I'm reading the statement again, and I think Kareem is on to something. And maybe this, this swept past all of us too quickly. When you suggest someone is publicly supporting the rape and murder of innocent Jewish people. It's a hell of a thing to accuse someone of. I, I think you're safer accusing someone of making an anti-Semitic statement. I think you're safer accusing somebody of ruining the brand of the NDP. But I'm not sure you can go where Doug Ford went with what I said. Yeah, Doug Ford, I think, definitely went a lot further. And it's, I don't think, terribly surprising. He sometimes uh, gets the gusto of what he's trying to say. But you got uh, that out. It like goes a little further. If you, if you were his right-hand man, 
you stop that statement probably cold and say, you sure about this one? You you would vet that. I would be surprised if this was something that was scripted and put in front of Doug and more something with Doug said in the moment as he kind of, again, the in, energy in of the moment. In Trump-esque fashion. Kind of, exactly. I don't think we think anybody's editing Donald Trump's old tweets. I can't speak to what the uh, the legal liable uh, aspect of this is, but I would say it, it's also a tactic uh, for someone to send a cease and desist to kind of put a foot down and never actually follow through on the legal front. It's possible. Yeah. Uh, and it's just more political uh, uh, jockeying, if you will. Um, I think the real surprising thing here continues to be just that Sarah John uh, appears to be a one person band uh, marching by herself, acting on her own accord uh, and not really doing so in lockstep with Merritt Stiles or, or the rest of the NDP. Uh, and the political implications of that, I think, are also going to be far reaching. Karima, what do you want to say about it? I, it was a written statement. Right. Um, so, you know, there had to have been some thought that went into publishing it. Yeah. Like I, I, I look at that's the only sentence. And I again, I people are having their breakfast or driving their kids to school. So I'm sorry. But yes, the quote publicly supporting the rape and murder of innocent Jewish people. That's not me saying, hey, I think you made a hateful statement. Hey, you you've apologized twice to your Jewish constituents in the last seven months. You've only been elected for eight. But it, Kareem, it's that last sentence there that ends up being a problem, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kareem, sorry. I, uh, I thought this was from the clip that came in the House, not the written statement, so I stand corrected. Go ahead, Kareem. Oh, no, I, I, I agree with all of that. And, you know, the, um, I think Merritt Stiles has made the point that um, this is perhaps a distraction from Doug Ford's own political woes in dealing with the RCMP and that criminal investigation. Yeah. And, and and I'd say two things can be true at the same time, Jamie. I see that. But I also see just that fire in the belly and that emotion and almost that, I hate to say it, that love it or leave it potential is there for Doug Ford just to explode and say, you do have to conduct yourself. If you're in our house, liberal, NDP, you know, conservative, green, you have to conduct yourself with decorum. And it may have actually fired him up to the point that she didn't because it's not some rando MPP doing it. It's the damn premier. Yeah, and if you're now going to debate what the definition of anti-Semitism is for legal libel purposes, uh, if you kind of look at how the early days of this conflict played out online in the debate, uh, you saw absolutely horrific terrorist attack uh, and what took place in Israel and what's happened to those people and those who have been now taken hostage as well. uh, And you saw people just kind of instantly draped to comfortable rhetoric about standing up for the resistance and like, oh, we understand why the Palestinians do this. Uh, and again, it holds Israel to that higher standard that no one else gets held to when it comes to mm. global conflict. Uh, you could say that is anti-Semitic, but when you get to kind of as descriptive and specific as what uh, Doug Ford said in that statement, I do think it becomes harder to prove. I got a couple minutes left. I want to jump to um, COVID vaccines. We almost never talk about the COVID word anymore after doing lots of it. And, <laughs> and there was a responsibility to do it at a certain point in time. But Karima, there's updated numbers from the province and Big splash. It makes splashy headlines. Hey, there's a new uh, bivalent uh, variant vaccine. No one took them like no one took them. And it was predicted no one would take them. And I'll call out some of what we might do in the broadcast industry. It, it, It should be a lead story when people don't take them. If it's going to be a lead story when it's out. So these are the numbers. 3.7% of Ontario residents have updated a vaccine in the last six months. 68% haven't had a shot since September 22. And 7,300 of the 11,000 taken. To my knowledge, they ordered a million. So they've had 11,000. These cost money. Were taken by people over 60. That's great. What's what's the reaction that you have to this? That we, we have data this thing ends up being a bust and we sort of like like whistle past the graveyard until there's another variant and another vaccine. Yeah, um, easy to kind of 
sweep past it because it appears to have been largely unsuccessful and didn't take with the population. Um, I think that there's been poor messaging um, on the part of uh, government agencies and then filtered through media uh, about these additional vaccines. I think as well that um, there is a general fatigue, a COVID fatigue, and people are determined to be back to normal and uh, have considered the pandemic over and done with. And, you know, if that is not the case, um, we're not clearly getting that message from the government. Jamie, how do you view it? I often hear sometimes a politician will spit out, well, you know, COVID's not over yet. And I'm like, I don't know what you mean by that. Back up that that audio tape because explain what that means. So my parents are still taking shots, but they're 79 and 77. But we're in a much different universe than we were even a year ago, let alone two. Yeah, I think part of this goes back to actual messaging in terms of how public health communicates. I think when you look at even what's out there right now and what they're saying, it looks like you're trying to take the Tokyo subway map and figure out how you get from the Northeast to the Northwest. And you got to take 17 different connections and here's the conditions and this, this and that. Uh, I would go so far as to say, if you ask your listeners what Ozempic does, they probably all know uh, and look at the clarity of how they market that. And the how commercials they brand tend it. to give it away, don't they? Yeah. But it, yeah, it's you're clear, right. right? It's, it's like, a message. It's a clear takeaway. Whereas when you hear any public health official talk about anything COVID related, uh, it feels like a toddler scribbling with crowns at Pizza Hut and an hour later you have to make sense of what the writing says. Uh, and so I think most people just can't be bothered because they do feel that the pandemic is over. So I think when you look at the very basic core of this, I think you still probably see broad support for vaccines in this country uh, and they see that vaccines are what got us out of this pandemic uh, and out of the daily hospital tallies and the mm. death counts uh, but are people rushing out to their shoppers to go wait in line mm. for three hours next to the Canada Post line where people are arguing with the clerk there uh, probably not if I told either of you Karima starting with, if I told you you need to get a COVID vaccine before noon today would you know where to go to get it and what to get nope Jamie <laughs> I, just, I can't if you told me I need to and I have to actually make the choice, yeah, I'd walk out of the shoppers at the end of the street at uh, Leslieville on Queen Street and uh, trust what the pharmacist tells me. And they'd have what, you, yeah, they'd have what you want. They would do it. I would I, assume I, so. I think they are still doing it at pharmacies. I know they. Uh, they I cover actually saw the uh, Toronto Star report this week that uh, I think it says of October thirty first, the whole population, not those more susceptible to really terrible yeah. consequences that as of October 31st, anyone can book it with their flu shot this year. Okay. So if there's one takeaway, that's what I read. In the You'd be star. a better public health <laughs> official than many of the public health officials we've listened yeah, to. Put, put the crayons down and uh, write one line. And I've been to that pizza hut with, with that same toddler with the crayons. Uh, it's an ugly sight. Karima loved having you on. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Awesome to have you. Great, uh, great stuff. And Jamie Ellerton, thanks for coming in. It's lovely to see you. I know you got a busy weekend ahead, so I'm glad you made yeah, time. Yeah, mother in law's in town. It's going to be a fun day. Uh, oh, we have her, have her on. We're talking to her at 8.05, <laughs> all about you on the way back. <laughs>